right, everyone. Welcome to Kingdom Foundations. This is volume four, I guess chapter four of Kingdom Foundations. Um, I am sitting right now in a somewhat warm room. I turned off the air conditioner. Possibly you can hear this right now. This is the sound of an ice cold Coke Zero being poured over a glass with ice. Um, I'm gonna do my best not to overheat here, but we're re-recording this session because the first recording, the actual live one with the class, uh, actually didn't make it for some reason. Um, actually, I know the reason we're not gonna get into it. It involves me losing my phone. So um, we are re-recording now at Kingdom Foundations. Uh, this is volume four. I want to invite you um, to open up your Bibles or grab a Bible if you don't have one and turn it to the book of Colossians in chapter one. Uh, that's where we're gonna be spending uh, at least the beginning of our time here. So to recap what's going on with Kingdom Foundations, um, we began this teaching series. This teaching series is really um, a series of classes designed to get you up to speed or to get anyone up to speed on Kingdom community, on why we started a new church, on the stuff that we're doing and the reason that we're doing things a little bit different as a church, um, our understanding of what God is doing, our understanding of mission, our understanding of the church's place within that mission, and then what that means for us. Um, and so we talked about how in, in the first uh, teaching, we talked about this idea of a bigger story. Uh, there's a story that's been being told since the beginning of time that God's been telling a story and he always had the same conclusion that for that story, right? Genesis 1 and 2, we're always going to wind up in Revelation 21 and 22 uh, with God and his people from a garden to a city. Um, and we talked about how sin gets us off that course. Uh, well, if we understand that kind of concept of a bigger story, then our gospel needs to change a little bit, that the whole goal of, uh, of the gospel, of the good news, of what Jesus did, right, in the cross and the resurrection and the ascension, uh, the ascension is another big part of this. Uh, what Jesus did is to get that story back on track. And so it's not just about the rescue and renewal of individual souls, although that's a part of it. Uh, the gospel, the good news is that God is getting his story back on track, that he's putting things right, uh, as N.T. Wright would say it, uh, that he is retelling or reshaping, recreating um, this story in a brand new way through Jesus. Uh, and so we talked, we that led into uh, a conversation about what the church is supposed to do or supposed to look like as carriers of that good news and that gospel. Uh, and then today, in this lesson, we're going to talk about what that means for you and I, individuals who are called into uh, this new kingdom, this new way of, of living. Um, and so that's kind of where we're starting, or that's the at least the background to where we're starting for today. Finish filling up my soda pop here, and we're going to get started. Uh, so in Colossians chapter 1, a man named Paul is writing a letter to a group of people living in this city called Colossae. As far as we know, Colossae is a place that Paul had never actually traveled to in his life. So Paul's whole deal is he's traveling the countryside telling anyone who would listen about this Jesus. And usually he got to actually stay in these places for a while, get to know the people, build relationships, right? Do good missions work. But Colossae is a place that he's never been to. So in effect, what's happening is that Paul has just this one letter to get across everything about the Christian faith that matters. And so for Paul, clearly what matters first is Jesus, right? So it's right out of the gate in this letter that he writes to these people. He charges in talking about the supremacy and the magnificence of Jesus, the beauty of what's been accomplished. Uh, he goes on to talk about how what Jesus did affects everything. So Jesus 
is at the center of everything for Paul. Matter of fact, uh, verses 13 through 23, if you're in your Bible right now, it's this superlative uh, paragraph about how what Jesus did brings reconciliation and restoration to everything, right? We're talking about the larger story. So from all of the cosmic created order, right? Right down to how you and I actually live within it. So in a lot of ways, he is bringing the first three parts of our study together, right? Jesus, through him, everything is being restored. Everything is being put right, including us, right? Um, but for Paul, everything boils down to Jesus, right? He's like, just Jesus is so magnificent. He's the very fullness of God himself. Through Jesus, all things hold together in heaven, on earth, below the earth. In him, all things are reconciled, including you and me. Right? That's almost like Jesus is the point of all this, and he is so unbelievably awesome, you guys. Right? If I were saying it, that might be the way I would. Um, but then notice at the end of verse 23 what he says. He says, I have been made a minister of this Jesus. So it's almost like, it's almost like this writer Paul, at some point, I had an actual encounter with Jesus. Right, like He actually witnessed something. He'd been so rocked by this Jesus person that now he actually just can't seem to talk about anything else. He's come so close to Jesus, so enraptured and set ablaze and transformed by him, that now this man Paul can't do or say or live for anything else anymore. So I want to talk to you a little bit about that process, because Paul has gone through a transformation. So I want to talk about that transformation that happened in Paul that led him to write and do such things. And what I'm going to argue is... This is actually something that takes place inside of all of us, if and when we come close to Jesus. Right? If we come close to the real thing, we will have this happen to us as well. So we're talking in a word about calling. Um, for me, I can pinpoint where and when this started to happen, and maybe you can too. Um, so for me, it was back at Simpson College. And at Simpson, so this is a Christian college that I went to, I had been raised in this little tiny independent fundamental Baptist church. Uh, for those of you guys who know what a fundamentalist Baptist church, uh, you might shudder a little bit uh, at that. Um, others might have uh, <laughs> good memories of that. I don't know. Um, but for me, it was a very narrow understanding of what Jesus was, what Christianity was. Um, that's what I had uh, gotten saved and been raised with. I got saved at age 15, accepted Jesus when I was 15, accepted him into my heart uh, at 15. And then from that point on, I always had a sense that I was supposed to get into a Christian or pastoral ministry. Um, and through a, a series of events, I wound up at a Christian college. Now, at this Christian school, right away, I realized that my understanding of Christianity was fairly narrow. Um, so I attached myself at the hip to the first person that I met at Simpson, man, a guy named Jason, um, good friend of mine still to this day. Um, and Jason and I, I remember we were trying to find our dorm room and we came around the corner to where our dorm room was, 103, room 103 in Thompson Mangum dorm. Um, and I'll never forget. We're walking down the hallway and I hear this thump, thump, like boom, boom. And it's music coming out of our, our, our supposedly our dorm room. Um, and so we get a little closer and I, I reach over and I open up the door and laying prostrate on the ground before me is a kid named Ryan, a freshman named Ryan. He is listening to Jesus Freak, an old DC talk 
a song called Jesus Freak, which is a crazy song. Look it up, listen to it if you've never heard it. Um, <laughs> you'll understand what I'm talking about. So he's listening as, as like the, to the top level volume of his speakers, he's listening to Jesus Freak. He's prostrate on the ground. And I remember Jason and I look at each other and we're like, what do we do right now? Like, this is weird. Like, do we touch him? Like, what's happening? And so we reach down, we, I, I, I like shake the guy a little bit. Hey, uh, my name's Jake. And he gets up. Tears are in his eyes. I kid you not, this happened. Tears are in his eyes. His face is red. And he looks at me and he goes, isn't Jesus just so awesome? <laughs> now at that moment, you have to understand, like there's all sorts of thoughts going through your mind. Um, first of which is like, have I joined a cult? Like, is this some sort of crazy thing? I didn't, I don't, I didn't recognize what was happening when we signed up for this school. Um, but what we started to realize at Simpson, what I started to realize at Simpson College is that Ryan was only the beginning. Uh, over the next few months, I was exposed to a whole different way of looking at Jesus and of following Jesus and of worshiping Jesus than I had ever experienced before. People at this college, um, they didn't just talk about Jesus in like the appropriate places and spaces in the appropriate ways. Like we talk about Jesus at church, right? Or at a Bible study. These people talked about him while they were eating at the cafe, while they were walking down the hallways, while they were brushing their teeth in the morning through their toothpaste. Um, they didn't just sing songs at church or at chapel. They like went for it, right? They were on their knees and crying and jumping and dancing and laughing in the middle of church, right? Like for me and my fundamentalist background, this is not something that you do. Um, and they didn't just serve in little service projects. They went around the world. 20 teams were sent my freshman year from that college to far-flung corners of the globe, preaching in Kenya and building houses in India, snuggling little orphan babies in China. Um, and again, my first instinct with all of this was to run, was to like get out of there, to go back. Matter of fact, I did try to go back. I tried, I, I applied and actually got accepted um, halfway through the year to the master's college. A uh, pastor friend of mine, actually my pastor from my little fundamentalist church um, had contacts down there and so got me in. I went down, I visited master's college, which was a much more for me normal uh, experience of Christianity. Um, I went down there, I visited, and I remember being at that at, at this college in Southern California, thinking about my first half of my freshman year back at Simpson and thinking, man, there's just something unfinished there. Like there's something I've tapped into there and it scares me, but it's almost like there's more to this faith than I thought there was. Um, and I started to realize that my place might actually be among those weirdos, right? Like among those crazy people who were that in love with Jesus. Now, trust me, not everything that happened at Simpson that first year was good. I mean, there was a lot of, um, when you start to have, when you start to be a part of a, like what I would call a revival that was happening, revival that was happening there at Simpson during that year, um, things get a little crazy, right? They get a little nuts. Um, but for me, it was like, I have to press into that. Something has happened in me now. I've seen like the other side of the matrix. Like I've seen that there's more to this faith than I thought there was. Um, so I couldn't pinpoint the exact moment that it happened. It might've been that whole year where I felt like I had come face to face with something much bigger than I knew before. And it changed me. It wrecked me forever. 10 months after that first night in my dorm room, I found myself running through a jungle. <laughs> True story, right? Running through the bush. I was barefoot 
All I had on were a pair of ratty, faded, torn swim trunks, no shirt, running through the jungle, the bush uh, of Papua New Guinea. I remember I was wet with rain and covered with flecks of mud and little bits of leaves and sticks that hit my face as I ran. My foot was bleeding. I can, right to this day, I can look down and I can see my foot bleeding, running through the mud. I look to my right and I've got a bow and arrow made of bamboo in my hand. In front of me and to my left are these little naked kids and old wrinkled men running to and fro, like darting in and out through the bushes. Six of us from Simpson College, college students, had ventured into the western province of Papua New Guinea. No adults, right? No faculty. Just a bunch of late model teenagers. The oldest of us was 21. We were on the other side of the planet running, mostly naked, through the bush, trying to shoot fish in a river with these bows and arrows to help feed the village we had come to minister to. You guys, this is all true. This happened. And I can remember as I was standing there in the rain, right? I can remember everything just kind of slowing down and asking, like, what on earth has happened to me? Something happened to me to get me to this place. See, this is the thing about Jesus, you guys, is that coming into contact with him, if you actually do, if you get close to him and you allow him to get close to you, it will change you. And I want to be really clear here. It's not that it should change you or that it might change you. Or if you go to a certain number of Bible study classes and a certain number of church services, you will learn how it could change you. Now, if you actually let yourself be drawn in, like all the way in to Jesus, you just won't be the same. Maybe for you, it doesn't look like running through the mud in the middle of a jungle. Um, But those of you who have experienced this, this calling, you know what I'm talking about. You know the change. The letter to the Colossians, I would contend, needs to be read in this light. It's a letter written by someone who had been changed. Paul's story literally was that he had gone from happily murdering Christians to being bent on making sure everybody knew Jesus Christ. The story of how this all happens, uh, of course, is in Acts chapter 9, where the scales fell from Paul's eyes and he was changed, irrevocably, indelibly changed. I would encourage you, read Acts 9, his story. Um, From that point forward, from Paul's encounter with Jesus, his entire life had become about one thing. And now he's writing this letter and he finishes this ecstatic declaration in Colossians 1 of the triumph of Jesus with the simple phrase, this is the good news of which I, Paul, have been made a minister. See, according to Paul's experience, what happens when someone encounters Jesus? (laughs) Yeah, why has he been made a minister? Because this is what happens when Jesus confronts you and you surrender to him. This is what happens. You will find yourself standing somewhere new, doing strange new things, living in crazy new ways, talking obsessively about good news and new kingdoms and the restoration of all things. And you will find yourself embroiled in ancient battles between light and darkness. (laughs) Now, some of you, as I talk about this, you're going, okay, this is hyperbole, right? You're over, you're over speaking this, Jake. Um, you might say, well, isn't that just what happened to Paul? I mean, not everyone has this sweeping dramatic change. Not everyone is supposed to become a minister of the gospel, right? This is just Paul's calling. Maybe not. But I would just ask some simple questions, right? Paul is writing this book to the Colossian church, a place he's never been. And as far as we know, none of the other apostles had been there either. So the question is, how did all these people in Colossae hear about Jesus? Right? 
How did the early church go from a few hundred believers by the time Jesus had ascended? To some estimates put it at 20 million by the time of Constantine, right? In just 300 years, this early gathering of Christians exploded. How does that all happen? I'll tell you how. More than just a few people, more than just a select few are supposed to get this wrecked by Jesus, right? More than just a few of us are actually called. This is what happened to me, right? And incidentally, it happened to my wife as well. By the time we left school at Simpson, we knew that both of us, we could never go back. We knew that there would be no more mundane for us. Certain scales had fallen from our eyes and we had been allowed to see something real. And from that point, I knew that for better or worse, whatever was gonna happen to me in the future, I knew that anything short of total surrender to Jesus would not make me happy. I also knew that anything less than total zeal and total abandon for his name's sake, like anything less than that would divide my heart. And I realized back then, right, what I realized was, and I think this is what Paul is saying here, is that these two things are deeply related. Intimacy with Jesus and abandon for Jesus. See, through my experience, what I began to understand and what I've understood a lot over the course of time is that the closer I grow to Jesus, the, the more intimate I get with God, right? My desire for closeness to Jesus, that that simply goes hand in hand with passion to make him known. One leads to the other. It's like a triangle. If you can imagine climbing up two sides of the triangle, the closer you get to the pinnacle of the triangle, which would be Jesus, the closer you're gonna get to the things happening on the other side, right? Soteriology, right? Our doctrine of our own salvation and missiology, right? Our doctrine of mission. These two things are sides of a coin. If you look back at your text, verse 13 through 23, they talk about how Jesus saves us from darkness, how he's reconciled us and brought us into the kingdom. But then Paul doesn't skip a beat. He says, I have been made a minister of this Jesus. This is verse 28. He is the one we proclaim, right? See, the call of Jesus is an invitation to be loved by the one who carved the world with his hands. It is an invitation to intimacy with the center of all that is. But it is also an invitation to a new identity, a new sense of who you are, a new purpose. It's an invitation to act upon the world so that the world is restored or made more beautiful because you've been there, right? To somehow share or borrow the very power of God himself to recreate and restore. These two things come together. And I've always had a sense of this in my own journey, that if Jesus is making peace in heaven and on earth through the power of his cross, if he's bringing it all back together, then in some mysterious way, I am a part of that as well. I found I, I simply cannot be in love with Jesus without his passion also becoming my passion, which means that I cannot love Jesus without entering into the fray and allowing his suffering to become my suffering. Notice what Paul says. The very next thing he says is verse 24. He says, I rejoice. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. So the call of Jesus is a call to his suffering somehow. A suffering, according to Paul, that we somehow rejoice in, right? And we'll get to that in a minute. But a suffering that actually, in some strange way, fills up Notice what Paul says, it fills up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Somehow my suffering 
fills up what is lacking in Christ's suffering. So what Paul's saying here is not that Jesus, what he did on the cross, his suffering, his affliction is somehow incomplete, right? What Jesus did on the cross, his suffering on our behalf was perfect. It was complete in every way. A total dismantling of the power of sin and darkness and death on this earth. But in order for that power, the power of Jesus, to have the effect that it needs to have, it has to be extended, right? It's almost like because of Jesus' death, because of his suffering on the cross and what it accomplished, the world at that point was opened up like a container, right? Opened up to something brand new. But now that container needs to be filled up with the power of that beautiful suffering of Jesus Christ. And so his work, right, his suffering somehow needs to be extended out into the darkness, right? Extended out to fill up the empty places in this world, the places where there's deep confusion and deep brokenness, right? To the places where it will have the most impact. The work of the cross needs to go out. It needs to expand outward. It needs to fill the world. And the way this happens is through his people, the sent ones, right? The ones to whom Jesus said, you will be my witnesses, they are the ones who will carry the work of this suffering Jesus forward. And so Paul says he suffers with Christ on behalf of the people he's serving. <laughs> I want to ask you a second question. The first question is, did you experience this calling? The second question is, where have you seen something that was just so not right that it made your stomach hurt? Right? Where have you been exposed to someone's pain and their struggle? Where have you entered into it and, and seen it and felt it and it wrecked you? A lot of us are experiencing this um, right now as we watch what's unfolding in Uvalde, Texas, right? I turned on the news and I saw another picture of these little kids running terrified for their lives. And in that moment, I shuddered. I began to weep, right? I experienced suffering. But for me in my life, I've experienced it on a very personal level here in Lodi. A lot of you have heard me tell this story of the time I was driving back from Lowe's um, with a full-size roll of carpet hanging out of our Toyota Matrix. Um, just imagine that. And, and I was driving back to deliver this carpet to the teen center that needed to be installed. And there was this little naked kid uh, riding on a red tricycle out in the middle of the street. Um, little naked, like three-year-old, four-year-old maybe kid who was riding his tricycle, darting out into the middle of the, one of the busiest sections of Lockford Street. And I've told this story before of how I went through this process of pulling off to the side of the road, right? This ridiculous dude with the carpet hanging out of his, his car. And the little kid saw me and he was just immediately like, that's stranger danger. I need to run away. And he runs into this apartment. And I called the police and the police showed up and, and we knocked on the door of the apartment. And what we saw there was just this unbelievable pain, right? This woman who was struggling, obviously, with some sort of substance abuse or some sort of addiction and, and at 2 o'clock in the afternoon is not able to take care of her son. And the feelings in that moment welling up inside me of recognizing that so many of the kids that we've worked with at the 180 over the years, this, that this has been their story, right? And realizing that there's something systemic, there's something happening in our world right now that's just not right. This pain, this suffering, Right? And I can remember in that moment and in many others, what's happening is this woman suffering, right? I am feeling, I am being overwhelmed as a result of her suffering. I too am now suffering. You're feeling it. You're taking it on. Perhaps this is why in Colossians 1, Paul talks about how Jesus is changing the world. And then in the same breath, 
he talks about how he's suffering with Jesus. Because if you're going to be close and intimate with this Jesus person, right, who's remaking the world, then you have to be willing to be led to the places that Jesus is intimately dealing with the world's pain, right? You cannot get intimate with him without seeing what he sees and feeling what he feels. And you don't have to go very far. In our city, in the past two years, the following have taken place. Lodi, livable, lovable Lodi. A woman was dropped off in front of the bus station with three little children. She came to the 180 with no place to live, very little money, and on and off again struggle with drugs. She spent several nights in the open with her kids, trying to find a place that would take her in. This is just a couple months ago. In our city, a man nearly lost his life after he went through two successive liter bottles of fireball whiskey in an effort to numb away the overwhelming pain of his memories, which included holding his mother and his best friend as they died of gang-related gunshot wounds. A child took his own life with a gun on a screen in front of an entire classroom of kids who were all struggling through distance learning. A 14-year-old girl was trafficked in a hotel room on Cherokee Lane. See, I started to make a list in preparation for this teaching of these things that I know have happened in our own city recently. And what I realize is that for every one of these things that's happened in the last two years that we've seen and experienced as a part of 180, two or three more similar scenarios would start popping into my head from like years prior. And then I realized that these are not the only ones I was somehow directly connected to, right? These things are happening all over. Somewhere there is hunger, somewhere there is sickness, somewhere there is toxic anger, somewhere there is crippling depression. And the whole thing, the whole sordid saga in our own little city cries out with a deep shudder for change. It's almost like it's crying out, who will come? Who will save us? When will it end? This is not hyperbole, this is real. And as the people of Jesus, who are in love with Jesus, who have the hope of the kingdom of Jesus, you see, something is supposed to happen deep in the guts of those people when they see and hear about such things. Because you cannot be close to Jesus without seeing what he sees and feeling what he feels and ultimately suffering what he suffers on behalf of the world he loves. This is why suffering is absolutely essential to calling. You cannot change the world unless you are willing to enter into it, fully into it. And because we're human, and because we're finite, entering into it will always bring us to a point of despair, right? And desperation, this feeling that we are helpless, which is exactly where we need to be. So now that we've talked about what it means to draw near to Jesus and to suffer with him, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapters four and five. Hold your place in Colossians. The book of Revelation, okay, has this scene that unfolds. By God's grace, we have this hope, okay? We know how the story ends. We know that in the end, Jesus prevails fully. In Revelation 4, there's this incredibly beautiful, cosmic, strange scene. You have the Ancient of Days sitting upon his throne. An ancient Jew would recognize the imagery. They had seen it before in the book of Daniel. And in this scene, you have what are described as the hosts of heaven. The, this like 
gathering, this technicolor gathering of angels and elders and fantastic creatures, all crying out and worshiping and being in awe of the beauty of God and the holiness of God, right? This is a vision of what will come to pass. And in this vision, this one sits on a throne and in his hand is a scroll. And the scroll represents the finality that we all long for. It represents the final judgment when God will make all of the wrongs right, right? The scroll in his hand is God's final edict, right? It's final word saying, this is it. It's his final judgment. This can be redeemed. This must end. This can be restored. This must be done away with. Now, buried in here is something deep inside of us because if we really let ourselves think about the pain and the struggle and the suffering of this world, there's a part of us that longs for that moment to come, for God to finally bring an end to all the suffering, right? This is, these are songs that we've sung as a part of our faith, right? This longing, this hope that we talk about that someday the end will come, right? But in this image, this vision, there's a problem. The problem is that the scroll is sealed with seven seals. And so the question the angels ask is who is worthy to break the seals and read what needs to be read, right? Who can do it? Who can bring hope? Who can bring justice? And at that moment, it's almost like everyone gets quiet. And then in chapter five, notice verse three, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it, it says. So it's like all these beautiful angels, right, and violently powerful creatures are suddenly just standing there looking at each other, right? Who can open the scroll? And they all kind of look at their feet, right? Like, do you want to read God's judgment? No, not me. Like, I'm not, I'm not touching that freaking thing, right? Something both powerful and awful is in that thing, right? Then I love this because there's this little aside here in verse four. The man giving us this vision, telling this story is this man named John of Patmos, who at this point would have been the last disciple of Jesus alive on earth. John writes this at the very end of his life. All of his friends, the rest of the 12 were gone. Many had died for the sake of Jesus. And John says, when I saw that no one could open the scroll and read it, I wept and wept. (laughs) See, John has gone there, hasn't he? He's lived a life of entering into the fray, suffering with Jesus on behalf of the world. He more than anyone longs for it all to be over and for God's final word to be spoken over all of this. And so the question he asks, the question they all ask, is who is worthy? Who is worthy to bring God's final justice and his final redemption and his final hope to the world? And the spoiler is, it isn't you and it isn't me, right? We don't get to judge the world. Take that where you will. In John's vision in that moment, right, this is what they see. This is chapter five, verse six. On the throne sits a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, bloodstained, sacrificed, the one whose blood has ransomed the people of God. And then all the creatures and 10,000 times 10,000 angels sing a new song. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. See, what this is saying, as loudly as it possibly can, is that the only one who can judge the world is the one who died for the world. The only one who can pronounce God's final judgment, the only one who can bring an ultimate stop to all the pain and all the suffering of the people is the one who loved those people enough to die for those people. Jesus alone is worthy. You see, this is where it all starts to come together. 
is that it's only at the point where we're beginning to suffer as Jesus did, when we're beginning to see the things that he sees and feel the things that he feels, that we become so completely broken and so completely overwhelmed by it all. And in that place, we realize just how finite and just how incapable we are even to deal with what we're feeling in ourselves, right? Let alone have any effect on the world around us. See, I think in that moment, if we're willing to press closer and closer into it, we will actually find both true peace and true power. If you go back to Colossians 1, like what on earth does any of that have to do with Colossians 1, right? Let's go back there and read what it says. Notice verse 25, Colossians 1. Paul is saying, I have something to say. I have something to tell the world. I have ultimate hope. Verse 25, of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God, that is the mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what are the riches of his glory, of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So Paul says, I've been sent to unlock this mystery for you, and this is it, that this magnificent Christ is in you. So that one, right, the lion, the one in whom all the fullness dwells, the lamb, the only one who is worthy to open the seals and reconcile the world to God, that one is now in you, Paul says. And that is the hope of glory. See, one of the things we Christians believe is this strange truth, which is that when we got saved, what was true of Jesus somehow became true of us as well. It's in the basic theological statements of our faith, right? When you were baptized, when I baptize someone, uh, I've been taught by my pastor before me uh, to say something like, lowered in the likeness of Jesus's death as I lower them into the water, and then raised in the likeness of his resurrection as I raise them up. And what I'm doing in that moment, what we're doing as pastors is we're symbolizing that when we say that, what we're saying is when you said yes to Jesus, when you surrendered your life to him, you died and rose with him, right? So what we say is the old nature was put to death and a new nature was brought to life. His life is in you. His nature has come to take up residence in you. His spirit now dwells in you. We say these things, right? And if these things are true, if his life and his nature and his spirit are in you, then what's inevitably going to happen, what has to happen, it can't but happen, is that you begin to share in his passion. You begin to look on the world and you see it with his eyes and you're moved deep inside in your guts, right, the way he is moved. And you feel the depths of his love for the world and you will suffer Shakespeare once said, Romeo suffered love for Juliet, right? He was on to something there. See, when Jesus is in you, what happens is that the object of his affection become the, the, these things become the object of your own affection, right? And so what happens is you see this broken person or this awful situation someone's in, and what happens is you look at them and you begin to feel all the pain and all the anguish that Jesus feels when he sees them. Don't avoid that. Don't run from it. Because you, all, all you will see is what he saw. 
right? If you press into it, you begin to see what Jesus saw when he was knitting this person together from before the foundations of the earth. You will see potential in them, all of the potential for life and love and joy that exists in this person and all of the ways that the effects of sin have marred that, right? It'll all come together in your mind. You'll see how the enemy has had his way with this person. You'll see the tragedy of their life unfolding before your very eyes. And when that happens, if Jesus is in you, then something else will start to well up inside you too. And the strange hope will start to come in because you will realize that in you, in you is hidden away a secret that can unlock life and set that person free from death. In you is the lamb who is worthy to save, the one who is worthy to break open the scroll. And suddenly you understand what Paul's talking about here when he says, we suffer And we rejoice in our suffering, right? Because you're in agony for this person, but then that agony is mixed with a profound sense of joy. You know this person's pain, but then you also know that Jesus died for this person's pain and you actually have Jesus in you. And pretty soon something else starts to happen, which is that Jesus' mission has now become your own. You're now engaged in Jesus' own work for the redemption of this person before you and of everyone else. And you could never go back. (laughs) You guys, this is why people like Paul become such lunatics for God's love, for the good news, right? This is why people sell all their possessions and move to far-flung corners of the globe. It's why people place themselves in harm's way for the name of Jesus. And in many places, it's why people are still dying for the good news of Jesus. Because like Paul, what's happened is we've gotten close. (laughs) We got too close, maybe. We got ruined by the agony and the joy and the suffering and the hope of Jesus himself. And we've realized that the lamb was slain, right? And the world is being redeemed. And now we're a part of it. And nothing else matters. As Paul wraps up this chapter, you see this just total, he leaves it all aside. He writes with abandon. Notice verse 28. It says, we proclaim him, admonishing everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone complete in Christ. So he says, this good news, this hope is for everyone, everyone. So we're teaching everyone, warning everyone and working to make everyone complete in Christ, right? Like how all encompassing is that? For Paul, apparently nothing else matters until everyone is made whole in Jesus. And notice what he says at the end, for this purpose, I also labor striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. If you translate that last phrase straight across, I love this, right? Translated straight across, it reads, according to the power that works powerfully in me, which I like better. Power that works powerfully. If I could say only one thing, right, to the church of Lodi, one thing only, and know that I would be heard, it would be this that in you and in me is a power that works powerfully. And that power is not meant to stay in you and in me. It's not meant to stay in the church. It's meant to be unleashed. For me, what happened 25 years ago now is the same thing that's been driving me um, and my wife and those of us who are a part of Kingdom Community in these last couple years. Uh, We've come to the realization that we cannot be a follower of Jesus and not also go and live in and experiment with this power that works powerfully. <laughs> there are broken places in our city, 
right? And for some reason, we know we need to be there, right? There are broken kids, broken families, and for some reason, we know we need to go to these people, right? There are people in our city who aren't in our churches yet and who need the good news and who need the power of a new kingdom. And so we have done some drastic things, right? We've reorganized ourselves. We've tried to organize our time frame and our structure and our liturgical calendar even around what it means to be on mission. Um, I left a full-time pastoral job at First Baptist Church, um, a church that I loved and still love, um, but now I'm raising support again and I am trying to do the bivocational ministry thing. There are some on our team who uh, left with us and they have engaged themselves full-time into this and we've seen... (laughs) We've seen miracle after miracle, right? And we've also been engaged with hopelessness after hopelessness, if that's appropriate grammar. Um, We found ourselves right in the middle of the Hazara community when uh, Afghanistan was being evacuated. Uh, For some reason, we found ourselves right in the middle of that chaos and that craziness, talking to people as they shared stories of their relatives who right then were running for their lives from the Taliban and they were begging us to help. Right? We were exposed in that moment to all of this suffering, right? And all we could do is pray and do our very best. And you would not believe what's come from that. As some of these people, these people from this little tiny church called Kingdom Community, right? Uh, some nights there's only 25 of us. Uh, you would not believe. Um, I have to let them tell the story of, of some of the things that have unfolded and some of the miracles that we've seen on behalf of this community. Um, And we've got so many of these things, individual stories of people coming out of addiction, like large scale stuff where we've seen within the 180 organization, which as a church we're intimately involved with, obviously, um, about how this counseling center came uh, into existence. You just wouldn't believe some of the things. Um, God has had some things in mind for us, but we're doing all of this, right? We're doing all of this because we know that anything less than charging headlong into the fight, these things will divide our hearts. And we know, right, the self-absorbed, focused inward, looking for what is easy and what not what's hard, we know that life, we came from it. Um, it's possible to turn down the volume on the voice of the one inside you. Um, but for me, I just don't want <laughs> the selfish life that comes along with that, right? And the thing is, I think, most Christians, if they turn deep inside themselves, they don't want that life either, right? I guarantee each one of you who are listening to this, you have something in your life that you've seen and you're just not okay with it, right? Someone in your life who's hurting. There's a family you know that needs hope. There's injustice out there you can't live with. Um, maybe when I, I, I read that list of the pain of our city to you earlier, something connected and you felt something. Whatever it is, don't turn the volume down on the voice that is speaking to you. Our natural instinct as human beings, when we feel the ick, is to cover our ears and numb ourselves, pretend everything is okay. Tell us a story about how we're doing just fine. Don't tell me I need to change, right? Don't do that. Take that person, that situation, that struggle, whatever it is that you've seen that is broken in your world and allow your heart to ache for it. Let it break. Let it be consumed. Suffer alongside the one who died for that thing. And then respond. You are worthy to respond. You're worthy because the worthy one is in you, right? There is power that works powerfully in you. I hope you will. Um, I hope we'll understand all of us that this is what it means to be a part of the bigger story, right? To tell um, 
and speak out and proclaim a bigger gospel, right? To be a part of a bigger church. Um, it all boils down to that intimacy with how we have with Jesus and what that leads to. Uh, I hope this has been good, these first four lessons. Cameron Davis is going to teach the next four, and there's going to be a lot of practical insight. Um, and as a matter of fact, I'm actually re-speaking this uh, Kingdom Foundations 4 after I've already heard lesson five. Um, and so he's putting some real practical insight uh, and into this idea of new creation. What does it mean to recreate? Um, and he gets into the topic of forgiveness and how difficult that is, right? Um, man, tune into these things, listen to them. Hopefully you're inspired. Um, hopefully you're encouraged. Talk to us if you want to know how to take next steps. Uh, it won't. It doesn't. Um, it might not mean. It probably won't mean. You know, coming and being a part of Kingdom Community. It might mean uh, figuring out a new way to do life or do this mission right in the church or the or the circumstances that you're already in. Uh, but we thrive off of. Uh, sharing with people and talking to people and encouraging people that they can do it. Um, so talk to us, reach out to us. I uh, hope this has been good. I hope it's been helpful. And hopefully I see or I'm able to talk to you in person soon. All right, thanks so much.